C'è la luna mezza mare, mamma mia, mamma redare. Welcome everyone to the Hollywood Godfather Podcast. I'm, my name is Johnny Russo and I'm coming live from New York City. My co-writer and host, Pat Picciarelli, is coming from Pennsylvania. Hi, how's everybody doing? And Megan Horan is coming from the Jersey Shore on the lineage. Yes, I am. And across the pond, we have Sean Atwood. And his accolades are going to go on for two shows, not one, because he's got that much to say. Sean, welcome. Please, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, cheers from London, man. Great to be speaking to you again. You are so well received on YouTube and everyone's just buzzing at your energy, your gripping stories. They're all like, we want more, we want more. Well, they can have all they want, tell them. I'll even come over and visit. <laughs> Fantastic. I know Pat and, and Megan have so many questions and they've enlightened me on your colorful life. And um, we have mutual friends, <laughs> including the sheriff in Arizona and Sammy the Bull. So let's get into it. Uh, yeah, go for I, it. I, I, was, uh, I, I was going over your bio and various venues on the internet. Uh, to say you switched careers is an understatement. <laughs> I mean, you, you, you went from uh, lawbreaker to, I mean, you, you become quite successful. You're, I mean, I, I'm looking at it from a creative point of view. I've written a, a, a couple of books. So have you. I mean, do you, do you have any training in that area? Or are you just, because you're so well read? I mean, I read somewhere that you read a thousand books in six years. I know people that couldn't read six books in a thousand years. That's me <laughs> he was talking about. Uh, I, I, I'm aware you have plenty of time to do this, but... Do you attribute your uh, writing skills to being well-read? I would say that reading improved my writing. Before I got arrested, I was a finance guy. Started following the stock market as 14, started trading it was 16. My goal was, after watching that movie Wall Street, greed is good, go to America, make a million in the stock market. Because I'm from a little working-class town in the industrial northwest of England. A chemical manufacturing town, so I didn't grow up with much money. I tell my friends when I was a kid, there was like a quarry at the top of our town overlooking this on a hill called Pex Hill. And there was a little tree that branched out over the quarry and we called it the thinking tree. So when I was a teenager, me and my mates would get on this little tree and I'd be like, I'm gonna go to America, make a million, fly you guys over. That was my dream. Now, my sister, who's five years younger than me, she did a degree in classical literature. She always wanted to be an author. So in prison, I read over a thousand books in just under six years. In 2006, I read 268 books. I told my sister, I've just read 268 books. She's like, you lucky bugger. People have jobs, lives, responsibilities. No one could ever do that unless they were like a mad monk in a cave. So yeah, someone told me reading would improve your writing and I've got this manic energy. I threw it in there and I, I read, you know, when this fantastic journey through literature, I got obsessed with the Russian classics. I say Anton Chekhov, his short stories are some of my favorites. You know, I tell you, the reason I asked that question was that basically that's how uh, I started writing. I, I never took a writing class. I never did any of that. 
but I was a voracious reader from the time I was like 14. And it's just a natural transition. I mean, how many books, while you were reading all these books, did you say, I could do that? I mean, that's what I said, because some of this stuff really sucked, to, to, put, it, uh, to put it bluntly. And I said, if they can do it, I could do it. So did you have the same thoughts? In prison, when you go to the library, the, the things that the fellas grab are like the pot boilers, Stephen yeah, King. And reading that stuff, I was sent in a few Stephen King books. And I think I mentioned to Gianni last time, there was a few fellas I knew. There was a guy that was a mafia associate for the Bonanno crime family under Joe Bonanno Sr. And he comes in my cell one day and he sees me reading Stephen King. And he's like, what are you doing reading Stephen King? That guy's putting books out like McDonald's puts out hamburgers. Yeah. I'm going to introduce us to some um, filet mignon and beef wellington. And he brings some Tom Wolf into the cell. He brings some John Updike and Norman Mailer. And he introduced me to a finer class of authors. So yeah, you know, reading the pot boilers, I thought, mm, you know, I could write as good as these guys, but I was in awe of people like Tom Wolf and John Updike and the language, the prose, the rhetorical devices they used. Sean, for, for our listeners, Pat, let me, let me, yeah, I just want to interrupt one thing. For our listeners who don't know what happened to you, let's take them to the beginning and your problems in the United States and the ecstasy, because basically now we they know you're an author. And I think if we take, we, we have two, two hours, take them chronologically of how you ventured into your life and, and what you've done with it and how you've helped the community now in, in the drug world. I think that's okay. very interesting. At the beginning then, like I said, I had this aptitude for finance and I'd visit Arizona as a kid. So I set my sights on Arizona. When I was 16, my aunt changed my birth in my passport so that I was 21 in Arizona. Took me out night clubbing, introduced me to all these beautiful women as Paul McCartney's nephew. So you can imagine, I was just a little nobody in this working class chemical manufacturing town. All of a sudden, I'm in Arizona where the plane comes into land you see the swimming pools in the backyards. The sun's always out. They hear the English accent. My aunt's telling people I'm Paul McCartney's nephew. This is going to go to a kid's head. So I think, <laughs> all right, when I finish university, I'm going to start to build my career here. So it was um, 1991. I didn't have a work visa. I arrived in Arizona on a visitor's visa, which I overstayed. I was an illegal alien. Right away, I applied to be a stockbroker, got accepted. And if you've watched Wolf of Wall Street, you know stockbroking's just glorified telesales. Yeah. It was commission only. I was living off my student credit cards, down to living off cheese on toasted bananas. Worried I was going to have to come home because I was no good at cold calling. I'd been in the office 6 o'clock in the morning, call 500 numbers a day. And the boss was like, you're only as big as the numbers are on this board for the month. Do not take lunch breaks. Other brokers will be calling your clients. Lunch is for wimps. It was proper military style like you saw in Wolf of Wall Street. So It sounds like, it sounds, it sounds like you were out to, uh, out to lunch and you never came back. 
<laughs> they said you can't even sit down. You've got no, a 12 foot curly cord. Pacing brokers make the most sales. Hold a mirror up in front of your face. Smiling brokers make the most sales. It was insane. So, couple first couple of years, I'm completely broke. Five years in, I'm the top guy in the office, grossing half a million a year. Got me on staff, cold callers. And I'm burnt out on the rat race. I'm thinking, right, I can see the potential of making money from the party scene versus having to work these long hours in the stock market. Now, what happened was I flew my best friend over from England, this big guy called Wildman. And Wildman had been in prison. And idealistically, I wanted to get him a job as a wrestler in America. So I got him a house by the Georgian Dragon British pub in central Phoenix. And a couple of months into him being at this house, I figured he'd just be at the pub having a drink with the expats and he wouldn't get any trouble. Me and my girlfriend shut there one night and a bunch of Mexicans answered the door. And I say, where's Peter? That's wild man named Peter. They're like, what, what? I said, where's Peter? They're like, Peter, no, we didn't order Peter. No, like, no, Peter, <laughs> he lives here. Then they all pull guns out and me and my girlfriend start backtracking across the road. Now, wild man walks across the road smiling. I'm like, what the f Peter, you know, you just almost got a shot. What's going on? He said, well, these guys are Mexicans that deal crack in the neighborhood. The guy at the back is Alex. He's the Colombian guy. He's the boss for them. They like to move around a lot. So I've rented them out my place. They're buzzing because I can do a $100 crack rock in one breath. They're giving it me for free. It goes sizzle, sizzle, ding, ding, ding. And my idealistic um, notion of getting him a job as a wrestler failed. That apartment, a couple of months later, there was a dead body on the doorstep. A guy had come over. For the, to do some dealings with the Mexicans and he shot himself in the head, showing Wildman his gun, because Wildman had never seen guns before. Homicide come out, do you know, do an investigation, uh, do all the, the take everybody's um trying to trace, you know, the gun pilots. It's ruled a suicide. And Wildman then has to move two more times. The next one he's only in there for a few days before he puts his roommate's head through a wall. And then we move him over to Tempe, Arizona. Now, in, in this place in Tempe, Arizona, it's just parties nonstop. I can only get like 50 to 100 pills from the local dealers. Wild man, wherever he goes, he's, he's you know, king of the street people. There's street people in there. There's Native American uh, um, prostitutes. There's gangbangers. There's Russian mafia. There's Mexican, uh, New Mexican mafia. So this eclectic mix of people, nonstop parties. And the ecstasy is going fast. So I start to think now, okay, I can get 50 to 100 off the local dealers. I could try a business experiment. I could go to LA, because that's where the local dealers are getting it from, buy a thousand pills and see how fast they go. The XC was going for 25 to $30. Me and Wild Man go in one car and some other big guys go in another car. We set up this deal for a thousand pills with a guy that I had had a situation with at a at a rave in LA before that had ended up with me grabbing him by the balls because he insulted some females that we were with. So I'm thinking this might go bad, you know? So I've got my two carloads of guys outside this guy's place in LA 
Um, he keeps us waiting for hours. And Wilma's like, why don't we just steam in there and take his shit? Disrespectful, leaving us out here for hours. And I'm like, chill, chill, guys. You know, if we burn this bridge, how are we going to get bulk pills into Arizona if this goes good? I'll go in. If I'm not out in 20 minutes, come and get me. So I go in there when he finally shows up. And he's with all these surfer gangsters like out of that movie Point Break. I don't know whether he's going to pull out a gun out and jack me or the cops watching the place or anything. So all this stuff is going through my mind. And I say to him, all right, I've got the money. You know, where's the pills? And he leaves the room and he comes back with the biggest bag of pills I've ever seen, like Mitsubishi's. So I say, can I try one first? Because I'm familiar with the taste of ecstasy. He says, do you want a drink? I said, no, I'm just going to chew it. So I chewed it up. And I could tell it was a good pill. A good XT pill from Holland should be 100, 125 milligrams of MDMA and clay in a nice clean press, you know, that beige kind of speckled look. And this was my problem with Sammy and the Bulls crew later on because they had the colored pills and they were trying to push those on me. And then the situation escalated from there to where they knocked out the teeth of my top sales guy. But I'll get to that later. So I take the pill, it's good hand the bills over, going back to Arizona with my guys, take it to Wellman's apartment in Tempe, Arizona. And those pills go in one weekend. I paid just one over $10, ten just over $10, just over one weekend. So I've paid just over $10. They're going for 25, 30. You know, I've made a nice return on my investment. I'm thinking, should I keep going as a stockbroker? And over the weeks, I decided, nah, I'm just going to go full-time in the party scene. <laughs> but, like, but like Gianni said, you know, at the end of this story is my redemption. And I go in schools now, scare the living daylights out of them with the conditions of, like, Sheriff Joe Pyro's jail and the hope they won't get involved in drugs and crime. I'm just throwing that in there now, you know, just to show people that I'm not trying to glamorize what I did. Well, that's amazing. What was the question? How long were you doing this? Were you dealing? Okay, so this was now about 96, 97 was the experiment. I quit the stock market, go full time. And for the first couple of years, I'm getting the pills out of LA. I've got three regular guys, including an English guy who ended up getting deported as well, who I was living with until last year over here in England. Now, once my LA connections can't get enough, they can only get five to 10,000 pills. So, you know, it's economy of scale that I start to get them out of Holland. Holland, get a pill for about $2. And I can't leave the country because I'm an illegal alien. So what I did was there was a website called Dance Safe. And you could buy a little testing kit from this website. So I sent smugglers to Holland with these testing kits to get some samples and test the pills. The testing kit it goes like a purple blue color if it's MDMA yeah. and not some toxic crap. So they brought back some good pills. That's how we established our connections. But in the beginning, and this was before 9-11, you couldn't do it now. Some of the smugglers had them taped to themselves. Some of the pills were getting mailed. And one woman, she brought pills in vitamin jars to Sky Harbor Airport. Now they stopped them. And they took her in the back room and they searched the stuff and they opened the jars and they looked at the pills and they said, what are they? And she said, vitamins. And they said, cool. 
closed the jars, told her to have a nice day, and sent her on away. Oh my god! I love it. But after that close shave, I thought, right, I really need I'm to insult. Yeah. I really need, well, I should have thought that. But what I did think was, I really need to consult an expert in these matters who can give me a professional opinion. And what I mean by that is a lawyer. So I went to this attorney and he said, what are you bringing him in for Sky Harbor Airport for? You need to bring them in through Mexico. So what I did was, I rented- Good legal advice. <laughs> yeah, it was. It never, no one got busted on this route. What I did was I rented a beachfront property in Puerto Penasco, the Sea of Cortez. I sent Wildman and his girlfriend down there just to make some uh, relationships with the locals. Now, my friend said if Wildman went down to Mexico and started behaving like he was behaving in America, the Mexicans would kill him. And the first house he, I did put him in ended up blown up. And that was just because him and his girlfriend decided to have a fight on the first day they got there. They stopped to take a smoke break. And those gas pipes aren't built as well as they are in America. <laughs> so during this fight, they cracked the gas pipe. During the smoke break, they lit up and a blue wall of flame appeared. And Wildman grabbed his missus and was running out the house as all of the glass exploded and that house burnt down wow so i had to relocate them and you know within, within, a, within a month or so wild man has established the necessary relationships with the local people one point when i was down there he, he um a crack deal had ripped him off and he just knocked this guy out in front of the police and he was you know spreading the pills around spreading the lsd around and everybody was was happy um with us being based down there because you can't run drugs for a plaza in Mexico, unless, you know, you're in with the locals. So all that was established. Now, what I did was I had smugglers fly from Hermosillo to Mexico City and get an Air France flight to Paris. And then they'd get the train over to Holland. Now, before 9-11, you could put the pills just in pillowcases in your luggage. Or if you want to be more secure, you could screw them in computer towers. Those smugglers would return flight Paris, Mexico City, Hermosillo. They wouldn't attempt to cross the border from Hermosillo. They would come down to Puerto Penasco, where we were at. Then the pills would be handed over to other smugglers. And these smugglers would have like a nice SUV with University of Arizona stickers on it and tourist rickerback, diving tanks, scuba stuff, and all this shit. And nobody ever got stopped bringing those pills over the border into America. With times, you know, like spring break, times like that, it was just a no-brainer because they were so backed up at the border. That's so that's how we started to get our shipments. We got our shipments then up to tens of thousands of pills. I think the most everybody, anyone brought on one shipment was 40,000. But by then, I'm structuring it like a corporation. I've got about 200 people working for me. My degree is in business studies. So there's like a, a faction and a head of a faction. And every month we had crime family dinner for the heads of each faction. So a faction head would get pills from me on credit, for example, uh, 5,000 pills on credit for $10. And then the faction head would give a thousand of those to one of his mid-level people, you know, for 15. 
And then the mid-level person to the street dealers for 20, street dealers selling for 25 to 30. So on a 40,000 pill shipment, I'm getting 10, spending three, making seven. So I don't know, about a quarter of a million um, profit on um, 40,000, yeah. How long did you do this for? Well, that's the thing, you know, the newspapers said that Sammy the Bull was doing big numbers, but he was a flash in the pan because he was only doing it for a year or so, and I had about a five-year run. Well, I have, I'm Sammy. I know Sammy well, and uh, when the, the the worst thing that happened to him is the federal government financed his operation <laughs> well, <laughs> while he was on the witness protection program. They didn't even know he was doing it. That's why when he got arrested, the the, the governor and the and the chief of everybody was going crazy because the FBI let him do it. They let him do it. <laughs> He's so crazy. But how well, did you learn like, so much about drugs? How did I? What was the question? Yeah. How did you know so much about drugs, the quality and all that? I mean, that that's brilliant in itself. I would. I mean. Okay. So, the ecstasy market really just burst onto the scene in the UK in about 1988, 1989. There was a thing called the Summer of Love. This was when I was at university. All of a sudden, from having to wait outside of these nightclubs, dressed nicely with the bouncers looking down upon you, the young people across the country just started smashing into warehouses, airplane hangars, or just going out in these fields and having these parties for tens of thousands of people just worrying what the hell they wanted to, all these crazy like colored clothes and, and, and hippie style stuff. Now, I started taking the ecstasy uh, every weekend throughout university. And I got very familiar with how a pill should taste and how the high should feel. So it was just doing that, you know, rave scene became my religion, really tuned me into the, the, the chemical composition of the ecstasy pill. Now, I'm not a big, tough guy. I'm just a nerdy business graduate. But Wildman was the muscle. And whenever when he came over, he just opened the door to all these other criminal worlds. So at his apartment one night, we're uh, not his apartment, sorry, at an apartment in the complex he's at. Because by then, this huge complex in Tempe, Arizona, called Rancho Marietta, we had, like, apartments all over that complex. Um, either dealing for us or holding pills or, you know, uh, safe houses. And so we're chilling. We're having an apartment one night in apartment party one night. And everyone's just chilling out, listening to music, smoking weed, having some ecstasy. It's just a happy vibe. A cop walks in. He says, I could smell weed from outside. Nobody moved. Now, I've been talking to a guy I've just met called G-Dog, Mexican-American, tall, ruggedly handsome. He's got the prison tats on his arms, and he's supplying the coke and the weed. So I'm having a conversation with him. Cop walks in, nobody moved, goes to grab his radio. G-Dog just pulls out a gun, points at the cop's face, says the only one who's not leaving is you, motherfucker. Everybody run. So we all run off into the night. No, I've never seen anything this heavy before, so I'm shitting myself. I go to a neighboring apartment. We're all in there. We've got a bunch of drugs. We're like, what should we do? Should we flush the drugs? What should we do? We can hear the police sirens, helicopters, everything. It's every, the whole area is coming oh, alive. Wow. All of a sudden, on the French window, bang, 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 bang. 
we don't know if it's cops or what. We look outside, it's G-Dog. So we open the door, we let him in. He schools us right away. He says, look, the cops don't have a warrant. Turn the lights off, turn the TV off. Nobody make a sound. If they knock on the door, just don't fucking answer it. If they don't have a warrant, they can't come in. They just have to go on their way. So we're still debating whether to, to flush the drugs or not, but he's, he's, he's just telling us basically just shut the fuck up and do as I say, and we did. Now, the cops came, there's dogs, everything. The cops came, they knocked on the door, and we didn't answer it, and they went right next door, and they went on the way. They were hanging around for ages, but once it all died down, I said to him, look, you're really hot in this area. I'm going to take you to another one of my properties to cool off while the situation dies down. Now, at the end of that, that weekend, he says, Sean, because you and your friends protected me, me and my brothers have got your back. I had no idea what that meant. A couple months later, he goes, look, my brother wants to meet you. So I go over to this house. I got all these low-rider showcase cars on the street. Go into the, go, um, his brother answers the door, short guy, bald head, looking up at me, scowling, like, you know, who the fuck is this? And he starts hearing my English accent. He goes, damn, you talk funny. And he kind of was buzzing off my English accent a bit. And he goes, all right, come in and meet my homies. So I walk into the living room. Now there's all these huge Mexican-American guys tatted up, prison tats, chains, wife beater vests, shorts below the, the ankles. I'm sorry, below the knees. And they're all looking at me like, you know, who the F is this guy? Like, like they wanted to eat me or something. I spin my eyes around the room. There's the biggest TV I've ever seen in my life. There's a little TV showing all the comings and goings on the street. So if anyone's tried to take them by surprise, they're going to see it coming. On top of the TV, there's a, I have to do a double take. I'm like, hold on a minute. I've seen one of those in a movie. It's not an ornament. Oh, yeah, it was Rambo. They had the rocket-propelled grenade launcher on top of the TV. Yeah. Wow. So this, this huge one just swings a spoonful of coke in my face, goes, snort this. Can't say any names. Um, he, later on, I found out who these guys are. That guy was a hitman who'd been on a killing spree. And he swings this big spoonful of coke in my face. He's like, snort that. I look at G-Dog's like, yeah, snort that. So, um, snorted it. Got into business with them. Started supplying them ecstasy. They started supplying me a few little things. I had no idea who they were. Two months, I'm sorry, two years into our relationship, I take G-Dog to the house. And the whole neighborhood is blacked out. The police are out guiding traffic with light ones. We pull up to the house and there is a federal SWAT team bringing them all out. And they're all in handcuffs. If we'd have got a bit earlier, we would have been in the SWAT team raid. Wow. Headline news that night was all their mugshots. The New Mexican Mafia, heads of the New Mexican Mafia in Arizona, most powerful, dangerous criminal organization. They tried to assassinate the head of the Department of Corrections tried to assassinate judge, cops, witnesses, you name it. And um, yeah, I mean, the brother G-Dog was one of my security guys, so he continued to work with me. And people after they saw that headline knew about that association. So, you know- Is that a wake up call for you? Well, well what should have been a wake up call for me was, during the time of the apartment parties, and I was still working as a stockbroker. G-Dog had introduced me to another guy, I'll call him Alex, an older 
Mexican guy with a stately swept back gray hair. Now, one day I get a call at the stock brokerage from a guy called Fish, who's in that apartment complex. He's got his own apartment and he's selling the ecstasy for us. He says, look, I need you and Wildman to come over here right away. I said, what's up? He says, I'd rather not say on the phone. So I go to Wildman's place in central Phoenix and he's not there. And the locals tell me he's out collecting debts with the Cali cartel guy, the, the crack uh, boss of the Mexicans. He's out collecting debts with him in central Phoenix. So I drive immediately then to Tempe, Arizona. Knock on the door of Fish. Fish answers the door. He looks like he's in some kind of shock and his girlfriend's behind him crying. Immediately I think she's being sexually assaulted and he wants, Fish wants Wild Man to do something about it. Then I hear, and I'm like, what is going on? And they said, just go down the hall and look for yourself. So I walk down the corridor, open the door, and there's a naked man, hogtied. He's got a rockabilly quiff. And the Mexican guy, Alex, is just stood there, like another, it's another day at the office, giving orders to a bunch of Mexicans who've got cattle prods. Yeah. And then he's barking orders, they're prodding this guy, and every time they prod him, piss just shoots out of his cock all over the place, and he's just like, you know, in agony. Now, again, you know, I've never seen anything this heavy before, so I say to Fish, what's going on? Fish said, the guy, came over and bought drugs off him and Fish had to leave the place but he came back because he'd forgotten something and the guy was robbing the place. The guy was robbing my drugs. The guy was robbing the Mexicans' drugs. He called me. He called the Mexicans and the Mexicans got there first. I'm glad I didn't get there first. So I'm looking at Alex. I'm looking at Alex. And I'm thinking, right, you know, what do I do in this situation? I've never been in this situation before. If I show fear, these guys are going to think I'm a liability and want to take me out to the desert. So I hang around a bit. I'm talking to them, appearing calm. And I say, look, I've rushed over here from the office. You know, I couldn't find wild man. I'm sure, you know, he'll, he'll do whatever you want to do to help clean up this mess. And um, I got to get back to the office. Now, what happened was they called... The, the robber's roommates and said, you've got 24 hours to go with 10 grand or he's going out to the desert. And the money was paid and he was released. So it was a happy ending. Wow. Was that a wake up call? No, oh it wasn't. Gosh. It wasn't. <laughs> I, I was on drugs. I was on drugs. And what I realized was when I sobered up in the jail for being on drugs over 10 years, the drugs had put a cloud in my head that had scrambled my decision-making processes. And I thought I was living like a character out of a movie and I thought it was exciting and I didn't see the actual danger I was putting myself in. And I, I was so arrogant and my ego was so big. We were joking, we'd never get caught. We're above the law, we're like, this is like a movie, we're never gonna get caught. You know, I'm in my twenties, I'm testosterone fueled. And I'm not thinking about the consequences of, of my behavior or where it's all leading. And as it just got bigger and crazier, I surrounded myself with people who were equally crazy 
And we were all just going down that slippery slope together, reinforcing it. Well, at this point, with this story that you just finished, how many years had you had up to then in this business? So that, you know, I was a, that was just when I was crossing over to a stop from the stockbroker to being a, a trafficker. So that was just the first year, that first story about the hogtied guy. Yeah. And the cop coming in the apartment, yeah. getting the gun pointed at him, yeah. So, How many more years uh, did you remain in the business? Five. And when, wow. you, when, you, got, when you got arrested, what, what did they estimate your, your net worth was from that, 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 all of that business? Well, here's the thing. Um, I was worth $2 million in the stock market. I didn't even need to be getting involved in the drugs. It was, it was it was all ego. I was living... All right, so I've written the longest ever book in the world about Pablo Escobar called Pablo Escobar's Story. A lot of it's translated from Spanish. So his brother, Roberto, said to him, you're worth billions. Why don't we just buy our own island, kick back, we won't get killed by our rivals, we won't get put in prison for the rest of our lives. And Escobar said, I'm running a multi-billion dollar business. My money puts the president in power. I've got... 10,000 people working for me. You want me to kick back on some island, sipping a cocktail and some deck chair? You know, my point here is, you know, it's addiction to the lifestyle is more powerful than the addiction to the drugs and the cash. Now, I blew through my money and I had a lot of it in the stock market. And this was the dot com bubble and it all crashed. And I had money on, on, on margin. When the SWAT team came, May 16, 2002, I was back down to six figures. But they would have took it all anyway, so it's just as good that I burned through it. Wow. Well, how, how did you get caught? Did you make a mistake, or was it just a matter of time? I had, um, okay, so I mentioned that there was like heads of the factions of my organization. So all of the heads below me, I knew they were my shield. If that shield got pierced, if any of them got busted, or kidnapped, or attacked, or killed, I'm next as far as that pyramid goes. So, you know, Sammy the Bulls crew moved into town and um, they lit the place up. I had the local rave scene locked down for all those years. When I came to Arizona, the young people in the rave scene were coming to me asking me to invest in their parties. And they called me the Bank of England. And over time, <laughs> those little clicks that were competing, I united all of those little clicks into my organization. I had my own security team, my own bodyguards. So anyone coming in with drugs that weren't mine, they were recycled to the house. I had it good, going good. The cops, they weren't even like bothered about ecstasy. All of a sudden, all these jocks and steroid heads and devil dogs start showing up in the raves and the clubs, pushing these colored pills. Yeah. Now, I had no idea. And Sammy used were. his own kids. That's how crazy he created this whole this whole thing with all his his children's high school buddies and and, and mates and they they started this whole new wave as you said with inferior drugs no less. How how I found out who they were was um, so I'm living in a, in a nice house in Joe Bonanno Senior's neighborhood in Sin Vacas in the Catalina foothills, Tucson, Arizona. I used to go there a lot of times. Believe me, I know where. Beautiful, it's the most beautiful place I've ever lived. Yeah, yeah. And um, my my wife at the time, I was married three times in America. My wife at the time, very intelligent woman, um, you know, a, a degree in chemistry, and um, 
Well, she was doing lesbian internet porn when I met her. And she had a lesbian lover. And her lesbian lover was going out with one of these new type of ecstasy dealers. You know, the, the steroid head guys and right. the polyester animal print shirts. And so I, she, I said to her, she said, come and meet this guy. Come meet this guy. He wants to meet you and, you know, discuss business. So I take one of my bouncers with me to this club in Tucson, um, Heart Five, it's called. And I go in there with this guy, my bouncer, my security guy, he's called, um, let's call him Rosetti. There's these notorious brothers called the Rosetti brothers. So he comes with me, he's packing. Uh, I say to him, I don't know who these guys are. If anything weird goes down, just, you know, just open up and get me the fuck out of there. So my wife introduced me to the guys. We go through to this VIP room and they, they clear it out. I sit down. Now I'm high on gamma hydroxide butamate at this point because that makes me fearless. A lot of the things I did, you might, may think I had pretty big balls to do them. If I was so bad, there's no way in hell I would have would have done them. I had my GHB. I would have had my GHB muscles up. So I'm in there on GHB, and there's two guys. One introduces himself to the Spaniard. He's an average, average size guy. Um, you can see he can handle himself. But he's got like a six and a half foot guy with him, whose biceps are as big as my head. And. I sit down on, on the so little sofa in between them all. And I remember something that my grandfather used to do to me when I was a kid. Playfully, he would grab me just above the, at the kneecap and just squeeze, squeeze my leg. So I'm thinking, all right, I've got to make these guys think I'm a crazy mofo because I know they're just going to try and sweat me over something. So I sat down, grabbed his, grabbed his knee. I'm cackling like the devil because I'm on GHB. They're looking at me like I'm crazy. And they say, look, we're getting a lot of pills and we know you are doing a lot of business with the local people in Arizona. Why don't you start getting some of your pills through us? And I say, I'm aware of your pills. They're the colored pills. I've got a reputation for having a good press out of Holland. You know, my stuff's clean. I'm happy with that. And then the big guy, the six and a half foot guy jumps up and goes, who the fuck do you think you are disrespecting our pills? Don't you know who we work for? One call to Sammy the Bull, we can have you taken out to the desert. So I'm digesting this because I know about Sammy the Bull from the news. Are these well, guys? Well, I want to interrupt you because your story is so phenomenal. We have you for another episode, which I just want to leave. The next next part as a hook in our business, we call it, because, <laughs> you, I mean, your story is amazing. I'm glad we went to that first because, I mean, the rest that our audience is going to hear is remarkable. And then I think it's going to make a lot more sense the next time you're our guest, which is the following week, to see how you turned your life around. For people, I mean, you're listening to a man who had, as I know, no mob connections, an, an educated guy comes to America and puts himself not only with all the drug cartels out of Mexico, Sammy the Bull who creates this situation, and I think it's a real cliffhanger, and I gotta tell you, Sean, we can't wait to talk to you next week. So I think we should leave it at that. Sean, you're up for another episode, right? Absolutely, man. I would do anything for you, Johnny.
Well, that, thank you. I appreciate that. So with that, we're going to say goodbye to our people out there. We're going to go to the mailbag. And until next we'll week. See you next week. Thank you. Thanks, Sean. If you're feeling sad and lonely, there's a service I could render. I'm the one who loves you only. I could be so warm, so tender. Call me. Don't be afraid, you can call me. Maybe it's late, but just call me. Tell me and I'll be around. Or when it seems your friends desert you. Thank you for tuning in to the Hollywood Godfather podcast. You can contact Gianni Russo, Patrick Picciarelli, or myself with your questions and comments through the contact section of our website, hollywoodgodfatherpodcast.com. You can also call and leave us a message at 646-776-3038. Regarding Gianni's motivational speaking appearances, you can visit his website, giannirusso.com. You can also visit amazon.com for a listing of books Patrick Picciarelli has written. Remember to follow us on Instagram at Hollywood Godfather Podcast, as well as leave us a review on iTunes. If you'd like to know what you like about what we're doing, what you'd like to hear in the future, and anything else you might suggest to improve our podcast. Most importantly, hit the subscribe button. We'll be back next week with stories of the mob and Hollywood, as well as answers to your emails and voicemails. Good night. Hi, Patrick Picciarelli here, announcing the release of the second book in the Ray Yale Private Investigator series titled Pop Line. In this outing, Yale journeys to Pennsylvania to help a deceased friend's sister who has been charged with the murder of her police officer husband. An outsider doesn't sit well with the local cops and Pittsburgh organized crime figures, which leads Yale down a treacherous path of deception, murder, and a crime so ingenious that it has never been duplicated in mystery fiction. Popline is available exclusively on Amazon.com.